Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. Thank you for not being at the Dallas Cowboys game. Um, in the event that you just walked in and you didn't catch Emma, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 9 today. As you open or load your Bible, two quick things for you. If you are new, thank you so much for hanging out and worshiping with us today. Uh, there are these connect cards on the pews. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you or the opportunity to take you out to lunch or dinner. So, so it's on us. Um, in addition to that, as we begin a new series, we'll get into that a little bit more. As we begin a new series uh, in 1 Corinthians, if you visit our website, there will be a discipleship guide available to you, uh, I think starting tomorrow. That discipleship guide has everything from group questions, a little bit of historical background and context, in addition to a family discipleship section. So parents, you could be walking through this study with your kiddos. And uh, the purpose of these discipleship guides is that we want to hook you up uh, as you continue to grow as a disciple of Christ yourself. So with that being said, let's dig into our time. As I mentioned today, we're going to begin a new series in 1 Corinthians. This is a letter in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. I heard a pastor once say that Paul's letter to the Corinthians is typical Pauline structure, and he would summarize it in these four points. Number one, I thank God for you. Number two, hold fast to the gospel, my dear brothers. Number three, for the love of all that is holy, stop being stupid. Number four, also, Timothy says hi. The church in Corinth was a very gifted church, but it was a very troubled church. Throughout this letter, we're going to see Paul address a variety of cultural and theological topics. One of the things that was most unique about the church in Corinth is that unlike the other churches that Paul writes to in the New Testament, those churches seem to be constantly battling against false teaching and false teachers that are either within the church or that are trying to creep into the church. Corinth was nothing like that. This was a young church who couldn't, didn't want to, and had a hard time letting go of the things of the world. Everything from cultural preferences and values. 
In many ways, they were allowing the the ideology, the values of the culture to shape them as a church. And so as a result, they became very troubled and very confused as a church. The city of Corinth was a very strategic city, and in its day, it was this multicultural melting pot. People would travel to Corinth for business and trade to make a name for themselves. One of the cultural values of this city was self-sufficiency and self-achievement. It was all about hustle and hurry in Corinth. One of the most things, one of the things that stands out about Corinth in addition to that is that it was a very competitive city. We've all heard of the Olympics. Second to the Olympics was something called the Isthmian Games. And these were really big events and kind of like Olympic Games that took place in Corinth. They would take place every couple of years and they would compete in everything from running to chariot races to boxing to wrestling to poetry and even even theater. They were a very gifted city, big into the arts, and the idea of these games was to honor Poseidon, which it was a big uh, idolatrous value in Corinth. It was also a city that became known for its dense immorality, its idolatry, and a love of spirituality. For example, at the top of the city was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, where there were at least 1,000 priestesses, also known as cult prostitutes, and they lived there, and that night they would make their way into the city, and as one historian says, they would make their way into the city to ply their profession in the city below. The name and word Corinth became synonymous with the word immorality. Another historian puts it this way, Corinth had a reputation for commercial prosperity, but she was also a byword for evil living. To live like a Corinthian had become part of the Greek language and meant to live with drunk and immoral debauchery. And this is the city that God called the Apostle Paul to plant in, to plant a church. And so what we're going to see as we begin to walk into 1 Corinthians is that it's not necessarily the grace of God that is shaping the Corinthians. It's something else. It's the cultural values and preferences of Corinth that are still being held onto in the church. And so rather than grace shaping the way in which they live, it is grit and glamour. It's all about the hustle and hurry and who's going to notice. This letter will be fun. There will be some really interesting topics that we'll cover. And by the way, we're going to be here for the majority of the year. It's going to be really fun. I've already gotten some texts, right? Like, hey, how are you going to handle the spiritual gifts? What do you think about head coverings? I'm going to give that one to Alan. And so when that happens, we'll see how it goes. It will be a challenging letter. Because there will be things that we will disagree with or that are going to rub us the wrong way. But it will be a humbling letter for us. And that's good. Because we want to be a healthy church that grows in maturity and holiness. I want us to be a church that is so deeply rooted in a love for God and His Word that it is not grit and glamour that shapes us or defines us, but God's grace for us. So, with that being said, let me pray, 
And then we'll begin in verse 1. God, as we continue our time together, we begin by simply saying, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us and salvation and sustaining us. God, we say it over and over again that you are good. May that be something that is etched into our hearts this afternoon. As we begin this series in 1 Corinthians, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom. We also ask that you would bring conviction for the purpose of transformation so that those saints who know you would get to know you better, so that those who do not know you would come and know you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's open with verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Right at the beginning, we're introduced to these two individuals. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, and in particular Paul, he was an apostle commissioned by the Lord himself. An apostle was an official office and role in the church. That role has ceased to exist when the last apostle died. In addition to that, being an apostle meant simply that you were sent that you were commissioned, and there were two requirements to take, uh, to take possession of this office. Number one, you had to be called by God to do this. Number two, you had to have had an encounter with a risen Christ. Therefore, if you ever see someone walking around saying, my name is Apostle so-and-so, you would say, no, it is not. Right? Paul is the one that planted the church in Corinth. All of this is documented in Acts chapter 18. Paul would always arrive into town, go to the synagogue, and start preaching and teaching the Word of God to see who would be persuaded by God's grace. And what we see is that not only does he encounter oppression, not only does he encounter difficulty, but as people begin to come and know Jesus, Paul ends up staying for a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. And again, you can see this in Acts 18. It's going to be almost the whole chapter. What you get from that in Paul sticking around for a year and a half is that Paul loved the Corinthians. He wanted good for them. He wanted to see them flourish and grow in godliness and in maturity. Oftentimes, Paul doesn't always stick around too much, but here we see him sticking around for a year and a half, discipling them, meeting them where they're at, seeing them grow in their godliness. And then you got Sosthenes. We don't know much about him. This name is referenced twice in the New Testament, once in Acts 18, and then again here in 1 Corinthians. If it is the same Sosthenes, this is a dude who was a synagogue ruler. And what we see, if it is the same guy, is that he came to faith in Jesus under Paul's ministry, and now he's on Paul's team. And Paul's like, we're going to plant a church in Corinth. And Sosthenes is like, let's go. Paul's like, cool, I got Timothy. And they plant this church in Corinth. And that's about as much as we know. Some scholars would say that maybe he was his scribe, and maybe he was kind of like an assistant. We don't really know. That's all we kind of get from him. But what we do know is that Paul always runs in packs, whether he faces opposition or he gets beat up. Eventually, he reconnects with his friends. He's always running in a crew. And I'm reminded of Proverbs 11, uh, 14, that says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. 
Paul was going to need an abundance of counselors and an abundance of wisdom in addressing the Corinthians. You see, this isn't technically Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5 gives us a little bit of insight that he has actually written to them before, and that letter is lost. It has not been preserved. The two letters that we have in Scripture are the ones that have been kept in the canon. And so what we understand is that, that the one that was lost was pretty heated, right? Maybe Jesus was like, that was too much, Paul, right? Because there were some issues going on in Corinth. And so when we come to this letter, that is 1 Corinthians, you're going to notice how carefully Paul crafts and provides pastoral wisdom to the Corinthians. It must have been tempting for him to want to grill them. But instead, he showers the Corinthians with grace first. A love for people begins with our view of God's grace. That is what shapes Paul's motivation in this letter. So let's look at verses 2 to 3. As I mentioned, the church was gifted. It's a spiritual church, but it's also a troubled church. That alone tells us that we can be particularly gifted in an area or skill and yet still be immoral, unloving, and living in sin. For the Corinthians, they could not let go of who they used to be. They could not let go of cultural value and preferences. And so they wrestled with and continued to embrace the values of the culture while still trying to grow in their faith. And so in verses 2 to 3, actually this entire section, what we're going to see Paul do is he's, he's going to bring a remedy to what they're facing. And this remedy is that he brings reassurance of who they are before he brings resolution. Again, what's shaping Paul and the choice of his words and the motives of his heart for the Corinthians is God's grace for them. That's what's shaping all of Paul as he addresses the Corinthians. So let's look at verses 2 and 3. I'll be very quick. I'm not going to read them all in, in its entirety, but here's what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This entire section is saturated with the grace of Jesus. In verses 1 through 9, Paul references Jesus Christ nine times. It is a very Jesus-centered opening to a letter. And it is done intentionally because Paul's desire for them is to be reassured and reaffirmed in their identity before he begins to correct them, before he begins to go into practical type of application. He wants to remind them that what shapes their identity is God's grace for them. That's where they need to begin. And so that's where Paul takes them. And so it's really a slap in the face to the culture where the culture valued self-sufficiency, being self-made, self-achievement, individualism. Paul is saying, no, 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 let me tell you who you really are. Let me remind you of who you really are. So when he writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, it's an intentional reminder that they belong to God and one another. They're not individuals on their personal island. 
They're a community of believers. They're not belonging to the culture. They don't belong to the world. They don't belong to trends. They belong to Jesus. We're not left to ourselves, but among the saints. He adds that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified here means to be holy, to be set apart. Paul is saying you have been set apart by God. You are not like the culture or the world because they've been called and reconciled to God through Jesus. He calls them saints. And check it, they are not called saints because of some act of sainthood. They are called saints because Jesus has performed this act for them on their behalf. Paul reassures them of their positional holiness, that they are right with God because of Jesus. Let me just pause right there. For those of you that know Jesus... Your position with God is that you are right with him because of Jesus' work for you. Listen, your past iniquity is not your present reality. That's your positional holiness. You are right with God because of Jesus' work for you. But then if we begin to talk about practical holiness... The Corinthians, like you and I, we have some work to do, and we'll get to that in a moment. Paul adds grace to you, that God has imparted his grace to you. Usually this means his unmerited, undeserving favor to sinners. Here it's specific to salvation, that God has saved you through faith in Jesus. And when he adds peace to you, he's not talking about tranquility as far as everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows. No, the word peace here is a reference to the peace we have with God. That when God saves us and calls us to himself, we are no longer at war with God. We are not estranged from God. We are not orphans, but sons and daughters. Nothing defines you more than God's grace for you. Let that sit. Nothing defines you more than God's grace for you. The Corinthians were trying to fold in and implement the values of the culture into the church, allowing it to shape them, and this is exactly what's wrecking them. It's wrecking them spiritually, morally, emotionally, ethically. They were valuing individualism, self-sufficiency, and so much more. But here's the thing. You and I can do the exact same thing. We can't look at this letter and put some distance. Well, we can, but we can't look at this letter and put some distance and say, I'm glad I'm not like the Corinthians. Because you and I are just like them. When you consider the valley, there are really good things in the valley. There are really good things that are even biblical. And oftentimes, the tragedy is that we turn them into cultural idols. And then when they become idols, we try to fold them into the church. And so once more, we can look at Corinth and say, man, I'm glad we're not like them. But let's look at the valley and let's see a couple of cultural idols 
couple of preferences that exist and that you and I at times are guilty of folding in to the church. Let's start with, uh, and these are, some of them are good. I'm going to tell you that. Some of them are good, but, you know, we turn them into idols. So don't get angry. No se enojen. Um, spirituality. Oftentimes in the valley, spirituality is this connection with God, and it is best defined and demonstrated through experience and entertainment, where often we want our hearts stirred with emotion that is honestly void of holiness. Spirituality is often adopted in our culture by way of personal happiness. And then we sprinkle a little bit of biblical talk on that. That's kind of heresy. And we will justify our sin and say, well, it's because God wants me to be happy. And you might say, well, that's happening in other cities. Well, we're not talking about other cities. We're talking about us, right? In the valley, religious activity is valued over repentance and revival. And when religious activity isn't taking place in the church, there are people that would say, I don't think that's a church. Okay. What about when it comes to work? We'll confuse el jale for holiness. Penance over prayer. Careers over confession. And we fold that into the church. What about vanity? Vanity. That our connection with God is best shown to others by way of our appearance. From Roma highlights to praying hands tattooed and uh, stamped on our trucks and skin. We confuse vanity for victory. We often value the passion and pleasure and charm of Vicente Fernandez and George Strait over the perfect promises of the Prince of Peace. You're like, well, I don't listen to them. Fine, maybe you like my nah. <clears throat> what about family? That one's, that one's going to sting. Because value is a, family is a good thing. The church is called to be a family. But can we be honest? Oftentimes, the valley idolizes Family. That we embrace these cultural expectations that the family must put on us or that the family puts on us and they're unspoken. That you got to go to your cousin, nephew's daughter's sister's brother's uh, piñata. And if that, you get that invitation and you see the, the, the blue and pink balloons taped onto the mailbox, you got to be there. And when it comes to that, if it's at 4 o'clock, por ejemplo, right? If it's at 4 o'clock, well, no, my family told me to be there. Why? Because you're going to be shamed if you don't go. No se hagan, right? We can idolize family. I said it. Right? Oftentimes, the valley can idolize marriage over worship of the Messiah. <clears throat> the valley is incredibly relational. We love to be connected, but we can also be transactional. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. There's a reason the phrase, I know a guy, exists. Connection and uh, yeah, connection often makes us feel more important than we really are. It affirms our status. It further, furthers our entitlement. 
When it comes to the church, what about the personal and parental responsibility of discipling children? Rather than embracing that, we look at the church as a daycare. Uh, Izzy mentioned the Dallas Cowboy game. Right? We'll value game over grace. When it comes to commitment, we want people to commit, especially in the context of family. But then when you are asked to personally commit to something within the context of the church, it's rather than sacrifice, there's suspicion. Why? Right? Everybody gets really like suspicious when, hey, can you do that for why? Right? Let's see how Nothing defines you more than God's grace for you. Not your family, right? Not your family, not your career, not that hustle, not that hurry. Nothing defines you more than God's grace for you. The Corinthians were forgetting this. You and I forget this. Write it down. Write it down. Post it on your mirror. Post it on your laptop. Put it on the dashboard of your car. Our culture, our valley culture, is going to tug at your heartstrings. And sometimes you're going to want it to. Sometimes you're going to lean into it because some of those things can be good. That doesn't mean they are godly. The culture will tell you that it's all about affirming you and what you want to do. But our affirmation is in God through him calling us to himself by way of what his son has done for us. We will live our best life under the sun through the work of the son for us. Nothing defines you more than God's grace for you. Next, in verses 4 to 7, we're going to see how this identity now shapes our activity. So if grace shapes our identity, how does grace shape our activity? We're going to begin with the, first, the second half of verse 4. Here's what Paul says. The grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech, and all knowledge. You have been gifted. Any gifting, whatever it is you're good at, any gifting that you have, you need to know you did not earn it. You did not achieve it. You received it. By his grace, he enriches you. Meaning, God doesn't simply improve your gifting. He makes it what it was actually intended to be. It is by his grace that you are empowered to walk in this newness of life, to exercise these gifts that God has given you. And when it comes to the spiritual gifts, we're going to get to them in 1 Corinthians 12. But for now, what you need to realize, what you need to know is the purpose of the gifts. The purpose of the gifts are to edify the church, to encourage one another, and to glorify God. Some Christians are more concerned and passionate about the gifts of the Spirit than the fruit of the Spirit. 
The gifts are to edify the church, encourage one another, and to glorify God. Paul mentions, too, speech and knowledge. Part of this is because the Corinthians were very gifted in these areas. It wasn't just this value of the city. They were actually gifted in these. It wasn't just a cultural thing. This is something that God blessed them with. And so when it comes to speech, this is a way of encouragement and teaching and care and counsel and hospitality and in ways of knowledge. It's imparting knowledge to others. It's diving deeper in the Word. And the purpose is for others to be blessed by them, not for them to be hoarded by you. Paul affirms them in saying that he has seen them grow in this area. Verse 6, Paul goes on to say, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, he's saying, when I saw you become a Christian, when I saw you uh, come to faith in Jesus, I saw these things amplified in you. I saw you using them. Good job. It's just encouragement. That's all he's doing. And he's such an encourager. Because the tone is going to change next week. But right now, he's just encouraging them. Like, man, you are so good in these things. And when you go back up to, to verse 4, it just it reminds you of his love for them. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In spite of what Paul knows about that's going on in the church, remember I told you this last week and other weeks, right? If we could create a subtitle for this series, it would be Christians Gone Wild. And Paul knows this. And yet in spite of that, he is thankful to God for them. Paul is confident in the Corinthians because of God's work in them. Are you thankful for the saints around you? Are you thankful for the saints next to you? Maybe you're like Linus from the Peanuts cartoon, where he says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. One of the ways in which we push darkness back in a culture that values individualism is by giving thanks to God for the grace in others. You catch that? One of the ways that we're going to push darkness back in a culture that values individualism, self-sufficiency, idolatry, is by giving thanks to God for His grace in the work of other saints. Here's your homework. Because right, I see heads nodding like, yeah, that sounds good. All right, well, let's put it to practice. I want you to write two names down. The first name, maybe the saint that's sitting next to you. And if you're like, I don't know who that is, well, you're going to talk to him after church, right? The saint that's sitting next to you. And then anyone else you want. Put it on your phone. Put it on your journals. And give thanks to God for them. Pray for the other one. Right? Don't worry about hustle and hurry. Don't worry about your schedule. Give it 10 seconds. We've done this before. And it's this awkward silence, but Mr. Rogers was really good at it. It was this, we're going to take 10 seconds to do this. So, time starts now.
one of the ways that we push darkness back in a culture that values individualism and idolatry is by giving thanks to God for His grace in others. Verse 7, Paul says, You are not lacking in any gift. Reread that one more time, because I've had some conversations with y'all before, and I'm going to come back to that in a bit, but read that first part. So that you are not lacking in any gift. In its entirety, that whole sentence is saying, you've been enriched so that you're not lacking. Did you hear that? You are not lacking. If I could encourage you with one thing. Some of you think that you're a second-class Christian. That you're part of the other group. Not smart enough. You don't pray hard enough. You don't read enough theology. You're not consistent enough. If only I would do this, then X would happen. If only I would grow here, then X would happen. You are not lacking. You have been enriched in every way. You are far more equipped than you think because of God's grace for you. Wherever He has gifted you in, you have been empowered by grace to carry that out. You didn't achieve it, but you did receive it. You are not lacking. The church needs you. That's the purpose of the gifts. The caution is that there are some Christians that know their gifting. And some, maybe this is you, walk in pride as a result of it. Other Christians need to step up to where you're at. Other Christians should know as much as you do. The church should do this. The church should do that. Be very careful. In this section, Paul is encouraging them. You have been enriched. You do not lack, especially in these areas of speech and knowledge. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to tell them, be careful because knowledge puffs up. Be careful. And if you're walking in that sin, let me just invite you to repent. It's not shame-filled. It's grace-filled. Why? Because you belong to Jesus. The grace of God for us shapes and empowers our activity. Finally, second half of verse 7 to verse 9. Man, I love this section because Paul is just relentlessly and lovingly coding the Corinthians with God's grace. He's addressed grace-shaped identity, grace-shaped activity, and now here, he's confident in God's grace for them in their trajectory. Isn't that a good thing? Knowing, like, where you're headed, not that you're just on some hamster wheel, you actually know where you're headed. And that's what Paul is getting to here, right? Second half of verse 7. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. As you wait for Jesus. That's all of us, isn't it? They and us are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. What does this mean? It means that sin and suffering have an expiration date. 
In the meantime, our hope is not in happiness, because that does this. Our hope is in holiness. Holiness that was given to us from another. Paul is saying that as this day draws near, God is the one that's going to be sustaining you. He's the one that sustains you. Here it is. That means, Christian, you are secure. See, the Corinthians were full of philosophers and a bunch of different individuals who were trying to work their way to this future that they wanted to secure themselves and oftentimes found themselves failing in that pursuit. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, that future has already been sealed for you through the work of Jesus. You don't have to be working for that future because it's already been secured for you. What else does it mean? It means that you are sealed. There's nothing or no one that you need to be working for in order to impress them with money that you don't have. You are sealed in Jesus. Nobody can take that from you. Nothing defines you more than God's grace for you. You are affirmed. Not because of your grit, not because of your hustle, not because of your glamour, not because of your success, but because of God's grace for you. You can trust this. If we can trust the faulty system of Airbnbs, then we can trust the wonderful Savior. <laughs> or how much more can we trust the wonderful Savior? Let me say it that way. Additionally, this is what it also means, that if you're not a Christian, thanks for hanging with us, but if you're not a Christian, Paul is saying that as this day draws nears, this implies God's patience for you. In other words, God is extending you. He is giving you his patience that you would turn away from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus by faith. He concludes by saying <clears throat> he sustains you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. Can you imagine the people, the members of the church in Corinth who just read that? Right? Paul is saying, hey, one day you will be presented before God guiltless. Can you imagine the ones who know what's going on? Like, we're wilding out. What do you mean we're going to be guiltless? Some of you feel the exact same way, where you're like, all I feel is guilt. Why would God even care about me? Why would God even want anything to do with me? Does he know what I do? Does he know where my heart really is at? Listen to Martin Luther. Here's what he says. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that. I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Man, gets me pumped. Marty Loons knew what he was doing. At least on that day. Anyway. Guiltless. 
Can we sit in that word for a little bit? Because it makes us a little uncomfortable because you'll start thinking about what you do or what you're not doing and all that stuff. Like, no, just sit there. You will be before God guiltless by grace. Why can we trust this? Paul tells us in verse 9, because God is faithful. God is faithful. That's a promise. That promise is God's commitment to you in spite of your sin and condition right now, Christian. That's a promise he's telling the Corinthians as they're wilding out. God is faithful. One theologian summarizes it this way, that little verse, that little section. In the gospel, God declares us presentable before he ever even looks at our record. How can you tell that God is faithful? Because of his grace for you. Because of his grace at work in you. And because of his grace and the way he sustains you. God is faithful. You have been called by God through Jesus. Secured, sealed, affirmed by grace. The grace of God shapes and reinforces our trajectory. It is said that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints. The church in Corinth was a problematic church, yet Paul gives thanks to God for them because of his grace to them. In order for us to grow in maturity and holiness, it's not going to be because of our grit. It's not going to be because of our glamour. It's not because of our guilt, but because of God's grace shaping us. So Christian, what are you holding on to? That may be a cultural value, a cultural preference, an idol, something that is worldly. Put it on the table. What are you actually holding on to? What has your heart, your affection, and attention that you forget God's grace? That's all Paul's doing. He's just reminding them of God's grace for them. What is it that has your attention and affection? Is it your grit? That hustle and hurry? Is it glamour? Got to impress people? Got to show that I got some kind of status? Is it your guilt? God's grace is greater than those, and you belong to him. Turn to him. Remember the saints. Walk in grace. And if you're not a Christian, your heart and your hands are held captive by the chains of your sin, whether you like it or know it or not. Something holds your attention and affection, and you need one who is stronger than your grit, your glamour, and your guilt to make you new. His name is Jesus. It is all about Jesus. What Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians 1 through 9 is that Jesus is everything. God in the flesh who entered time and history and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death and then resurrected on the third day, ascended into heaven, and then sends his spirit to empower us, not only forgiving us, but making us new. Turn to Jesus 
as we make our way in 1 Corinthians, that's ultimately Paul's cry. Because he's going to address some dicey topics. And so here in these first verses, Paul is saying it's all about Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus. Church, we are not shaped by grit, by glamour, or our guilt. We are shaped by grace. Let's pray. Father, we conclude our time by recognizing your grace for us. In ways that are beautiful, in ways that are biblical, in ways that are tangible. But also in ways where we might miss it. Where we might be unaware. And yet still delightful as your grace shapes us to be who you have called us to be, a new creation. Father, we confess our sin to you, our shortcomings, our offenses, our wondering. We confess when we forfeit our holiness when we misuse and abuse and waste the gifts that you have given us, especially when we ground them in our self-sufficiency rather than our satisfaction in your goodness for us. Father, forgive us. As you bring conviction and awareness to our hearts right now, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds to remember the promise of your faithful grace. Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us the strength and wisdom to change as a result of your faithfulness to us, to remember who you say we are, yours, and to love one another out of a love for you. 